Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Cheshire and moved to Wales at age three. She attended convent schools before heading to an Anglican school, where she broke every possible rule I could, in her words, and then went to Cambridge, studying law at first and then history. She had dreams of becoming an actor, so joined the Footlights, the renowned theatre club at the university, but left when a sketch was rejected. After university, my guest struggled to get into acting, working first at the Arts Council and as a lecturer. Her first proper role came at the age of 34, when she was cast in the ITV show Peak Practice. Since then, she has starred in the NHS-focused drama Getting On, which she also co-wrote, and played Terry in The Thick of It, as well as The Invisible Woman, to name a few. Speaking about her battle to get into the industry, she said, Coming up to 30, things become clearer. You've not yet necessarily got the experience to pull it off, but you suddenly think, I need to make a change. Even if I'm a complete failure, it doesn't matter. Every day I act or write is a day I'm ten times happier. She plays a leading role in After Love, a film about a woman uncovering the secret life of her late husband, which is out now. My guest today is Joanna Scanlon. So Joanna, many thanks for coming on the podcast today. Uh, to begin, we ask, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? I don't know whether a happy childhood is something that anybody really experiences or indeed what that phrase means. I think it is bandied about a lot. Childhood, the process of (laughs) being born, getting bigger, (laughs) having to kind of deal with understanding the world as it is, is, I think, inevitably going to be a stretch you know that that's the nature of it literally a stretch you and I would say my own childhood was if you want to call it happy it would be associated with the things that all childhoods are associated with which is being out in the countryside being free spending a lot of time with animals having a kind of rather beautiful I mean North Wales is the most beautiful place and it is incredibly beautiful place to grow up And I was certainly very happy in all those aspects. But I didn't like being a child. I wanted to be an adult from the moment that I worked out that it was adults who decided they could do with their day what they wanted to do. And I didn't like being told, you know, you've got to go to bed now or you've got to do anything very much. I just wanted to be a free agent and I associated that with being an adult. So in that sense, I found childhood quite frustrating. Um, that's interesting what you're saying about obviously not wanting to be told what to do, which I think most of us sh- share that sensation um, when we're growing up, because I was looking at some of the things you said about your education. And as I mentioned briefly in the introduction, saying, you know, you broke every possible rule that you could. So what was your education like? Was it was it the fact, did it feel heavy handed? So you wanted to kick back? Well, I had a very, I think I had quite an unusual education. Firstly, I was educated privately throughout which in itself is is rare, isn't it? I mean, generally, generally people are not educated privately or within the independent sector. So that in itself was a strange, anomalous thing. And my mum actually says now I, she very much wishes we had been educated with our local schools because we would have learnt Welsh apart from anything else, which is something that I, you know, I'm, I'm really only doing now as a, as a grown-up. I think... I, so... The thing that is strange is that I went to a boarding school age six um, and yet it was only down the road. But the reason 
for that was that my parents are Catholics. They're very devout Catholics. And at that time, this is the 60s, the 60s, you know, Vatican II was happening. There were lots of changes in Catholicism, but it was considered to be like an essential thing, a responsibility of a parent to give their child a Catholic education. So I went to the local convent and that was, you know, I was six years old and I was there from as a weekly boarder. And that was a bit strange. And I think it's, you know, it's it's the one thing that if you if you sit me down and say, so tell me about your childhood, Joanna, I could cry about. You know, I could at the time I didn't cry. I was terribly sort of gung ho and so-called brave. But actually, there's a bit of me that still really hurts. It related to that sort of experience of being on your own as a very small child. But there were others amongst, you know, there were others the same age and they were also there. And I was always very sociable. So I had friends and I enjoyed that aspect of school. Then I went to another convent which I similarly, actually, it was probably there that I started the rule breaking. And that was many, many miles away. That was when I was nine and it was in Essex. And I had to go on a, people can't believe that I did this, but I used to go on a train by myself from Liverpool, get to Euston, get in a black cab, cross over to Liverpool Street and go out on a train to, to Chelmsford. Seems unbelievable now, doesn't it? Well, it's probably about 11, 12. I mean, it seems inconceivable. Perhaps I was with another girl who was also at the school. I, I can't quite remember, but it was the point being independent. I was very, very independent from an early age. And I still have to fight that sense of independence, actually, and learn that interdependence is a much healthier and much better way to be. And then I went, I was so badly behaved that I was, the headmistress rang up and told my mum that basically she had to come and get me and that I couldn't stay there any longer. And I ended up going to a local Anglican school in North Wales, again boarding. And by then I was a teenager and much more able to look after myself and had a great time with my friends and so on. And was your mother stressed out by this or or she think it showed that you were an independent minded, spirited young woman? You know, I think, Katie, that you might have hit the nail on the head there because I think a bit of her was slightly proud of it. She never told me off. The nearest I got to being told off was after in the most appalling school report, my father was told to take me into a room and tell me off. And all I can remember him saying was, do you want to become a juvenile delinquent? And I remember thinking, do I or don't I? Not sure. Um, and that was the that was the most I mean both my parents sort of valued lack of conformity I think so they didn't really they didn't really tell me off at all and could you tell us briefly about the death trap was was that uh... (laughs) sorry to laugh just as I take a sip of tea oh the death trap okay so the death trap was a place at my school where if you were naughty uh, at all you had the, the punishment was a simple thing of having to stand in the death trap for about 15 minutes I don't know why but it was when everybody walked past you and I think it was supposed to be some kind of hall of shame and physically architecturally what it is was a 
covered walkway with two glass sides to it. No, so no idea why that was called the death trap, other than that if a very, very, very large hurricane came along, you might get shards of glass inside you, which might kill you off. Who knows? But it was that was one of the punishments. And it was for me, it was always a badge of honour to be seen to behave badly. And so the more punishments I got, the, the more I did it, really. And I, I think also partly because of having been sent away so young and and not having had much parental attention, therefore, automatically, it, being naughty was just a way of getting a conversation with a grown-up. I really craved a conversation with a grown-up of some kind. And so uh, I was endlessly being sent to the headmistress's office. And that was great as far as I was concerned, because then we'd have something to talk about. And I'd, I'd get her saying usually to me, what is, you know, what is the matter? What is bothering you? And I go, hmm, I'm not sure. It could be this, could be that. It's a bit like a, you know, therapist's couch or something. It was quite addictive. Maybe I should come back tomorrow to talk about more. <laughs> sense. Now, did you want to be uh, an actress from an early age because you initially went to study law? Yeah, I, d- I did want to be an actress at an early age. I was about four. The first convent that I went to when I was six, uh, I did have two years there from four till six when I was a day girl rather than a boarder. And that convent was very sort of showbiz crazy. They had loads and loads of drama and dance and singing. And we put on amazing annual pantomimes. And, you know, it was a very, very much positive place about creative performance. And I remember being given a poem to learn and recite. And I did so for the very first time in front of a very small audience, must have been, you know, a couple of teachers and whatever. And I remember the feeling of being transported to another place that rather than the world that I lived in, it was a world of the imagination. And I was just mentally, spiritually and in my imagining, physically transported to the place of this poem and thinking I prefer it there. I prefer that world to this world. And that was really the beginning of of wanting to be a performer. And I would say that is still the case, that I, I love the world of play and imagination and feel it's more truthful and more real in many senses than the one that we exist in in a more kind of arduous manner day to day. It feels imagination is the answer to so many of my struggles if you like. And while you're at Cambridge you look to obviously more the acting side, the things you can get involved in and one thing that gets your takes your attention is the footlights. Can you can you talk us through that? Yeah, well this was one of the reasons I'd applied to Cambridge in the first place because I was a bit torn at the end of my school days as to whether to go to drama school or to go to university. And various teachers said, well, you know, you might as well try for university because you you probably you know be able to get in and you know get a degree of some kind and then you could always do drama school later and my mother said well there's there's always footlights i mean she she knew nothing really about higher education having left school herself at 16 or 15 actually to become a secretary and and my father hadn't been to university either so they weren't able to give much sort of experiential advice but she said she knew about footlights. So that was always on the radar. And in my second year, so I picked myself up from the, you know, drunken, smoking, 
you know, depressed, lying in a bed. Cambridge isn't what I expected it to be. Experience and started auditioning and went up for everything, actually. I was always a bit torn between the drama and and Footlights, but then did join. My, my Footlights audition was, I mean, positively traumatic insofar as it consisted of sitting in front of people who I was admiring of and frightened of at the same time and just being put on a stage and asked to be funny just literally now can you do something funny uh, from nowhere with nothing to sort of pin that on and it was really frightening I can't remember what I did but it got me over the bar so that I was in the footlights pantomime and actually you know it's not that there's anything innately awful about footlights but Two years before that, or three years before that, had been the Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson, Hugh Laurie generation. They had done it spectacularly well and done something wonderful. And at the same time, Emma Thompson had done a women's review, again, part of that 70s wave of feminism. And she she had done a women's review, which was exclusively women, Annabel Arden, Jan Ravens was in it, and she famously had shaved her head to do this review, women's review. But it was almost like as often happens in in development of ideas something goes forward and then it takes a couple of steps back so my generation by the time I was uh, auditioning for Footlights everybody was very nice lovely people some of them still very close friends of mine but the you know what what they call institutional sort of sexism was was inherent in it and I just couldn't find a uh, forgive me the pun, foothold within that footlight to be able to sort of get my ideas through, I guess would be the word. And I, at the same time, was working with lots of other kinds of playwrights and doing lots of drama. And it, I just thought I'd feel more comfortable in that. I, and this pressure constantly to be funny, I just didn't think, you know, I've always found there's a difference between what they call comedy with the capital C and what is actually funny. So that, and and I'm always more interested in what is actually funny, which has often been traditionally in, in Britain, has often been in within drama. You know, there've been hilarious moments of pain and anguish, but they are really funny in say a Ken Loach movie, which is quintessentially British in my view, rather than something that we necessarily call comedy. Now, you get to the end of your time at university and are you feeling from those things you've been doing on the side, not footlights, but, you, you know, the other writing you're doing and, and so forth. At that point, are you thinking, I'm going straight to acting when I when I get out of here? That's my plan. I did. Yeah, I thought I'm going straight to acting. Uh, and that was another moment of um, reality check because I could not get an agent. I couldn't get a, a if I'd done footlights, I would have had an equity card. And that was, uh, you know, stupid decision number one in, in the sense that it, I would have been able then to be eligible to at least be put up for jobs. But I had chosen not to do the footlights, therefore I didn't have the equity card and I couldn't then get an equity card. And at that time, you will remember, well, you won't remember because you're far too young, but the, the it, it was a closed shop and you couldn't work uh, unless you had that magic piece of paper. So I was a bit stuffed. I couldn't get anything through I just couldn't find my way and but I was still working with a, a friend who we were writing plays and putting them on and we did a tour we did a couple of tours and I was very in love with him 
And at a certain point in one of our tours, he um, fell in love with somebody else, basically. And that floored me, completely floored me. So then I just retreated, really, for quite a few years into my local community theatre. So I was living in a council flat in what was called Surrey Docks then, but became Surrey Keys later on, uh, thanks to the London Development, Dockland Development um, Corporation. And I started working my community theatre, which was run by Dartington College of Arts. And that got me into a whole new world, really. Everything I'd been I'd studied with my independent education and Cambridge was essentially out of the classical sort of world and everything that Dartington was doing and everything that was happening at Rotherhide Theatre Workshop which was an amazing place was out of the modernist world it was out of a kind of fracture with classicism and that was a wonderful kind of adventure for me and that's what got me into teaching drama I ended up being a lecturer at to Montfort University and then I ended up working at the Arts Council all really as a consequence of kind of the kind of exciting set of people and ideas that I found through Rotherhithe. And yeah I do want to talk about your time at the Arts Council um, shortly because you've also spoken in the past about how it's influenced some of your roles uh, but I, I just wanted first because one thing that you've been quite open about is your experiences with depression and there was a period when you moved back to North Wales to be your family was was that after those jobs or? Um, it was between actually it was um, so I was I was a lecturer for five years at Leicester Poly, which became De Montfort University whilst I was there. So it was undergoing all those changes in higher education, um, which was in itself quite stressful. But it was, I, I just was in the, you know, as my friend always says, and um, Nick Park coined, I was just wearing the wrong trousers. I was in the wrong trousers. I just, I wasn't really a natural teacher. I wasn't a very good teacher. And I wanted to be a maker. I wanted to be a doer. And I wanted to work at a professional level. I still I still wanted to be a performer and an actress. So I had this kind of collapse, I guess you'd call it. Um, it was termed at the time chronic fatigue syndrome. So possibly it was a kind of post-viral thing. But possibly it wasn't. I mean, it's in my, in my unmedical way of looking at it. It was akin to some of those things I'd read in Victorian novels when people sort of fell to the floor with nervous, you know, nervous collapse, nervous breakdown territory. It felt a bit like that. That was, I'd read about that in Victorian novels and that's how it felt a bit. And it essentially meant that I was confined. I just couldn't work. I couldn't think. All I did was cry or uh, ache or just feel like I had flu. Um, and that went on for about a year. And that's when I went back to my parents but I met an amazing doctor during that whole process of diagnosis who was a consultant physician at the hospital nearby. And he said to me, tell me a little bit about your, you know, what you've been doing for work. And, you know, he asked, I remember he asked me about my dreams as well. And then he said, um, I think if you don't go back to acting, you'll be ill for the rest of your life, which was a pretty kind of a pretty punchy thing to say from a a medical doctor but it, as he said it I think the reason I remember it is that I thought I think that's true but it, it was hugely embarrassing for me 
to then make the move to being a professional. I had friends who were doing really, really well. You know, they were sort of, you know, very well sitting in the firmament. And I just didn't quite know how to say, well, I would like to do that too. I felt really humiliated and embarrassed about that desire. And in the meantime, of course, it was that recession, 90s recession. I had a house, I had a mortgage, I had all sorts of things. And a friend of mine was working for Arts Council of Great Britain, as it was at the time. She said, I think you'd be perfect to apply for my job when I leave, amongst other people. I'm sure I wasn't the only one. And I got that job and she said the Arts Council is, you know, would be a good place for you to work. And I thought I could at least do this for a while. I can start writing. And if I write, I might be able to get enough commissions to be able to leave that job eventually and be able to then start the dream of being a professional actress as well as uh, a writer. So that's what happened, effectively, after two and a half years. Yeah, I think it was about two and a half years of a amazingly interesting job at the Arts Council, which at that time was sat within Westminster because it was in St. Great Peter Street. I then walked into my boss's office and said, I've, I've got a commission to write something and I can afford to leave this job and take a punt, So, which is what I did. And do you get an agent, finally? Well, by then I had a literary agent because I'd been doing, I'd been writing. So I had a literary agent and I rang the literary agent the very day, you know, that I'd been into my boss and said, right, I'm going to, I want to start acting. I had nothing, had nothing to go on, of course. But they said, well, that's really strange because we're starting an actor's list. We're a literary agent usually, but we're going to have a list of actors. So why didn't you just come with us? So it was absolute kind of serendipity. And they took me on and there was a wonderful agent there who's still a very good agent. And she believed in me and got a few little snippets. And I rang everybody I knew who worked in the profession and said, please, can I have a job? I just had to kind of, the humiliation I felt almost made me just go, right, just jump in and be thoroughly shamed and embarrassed by your own, you know, sort of dream and admit to people that you're somebody who wants to do something that other people would have judgment about, I guess. So I just did it. I just jumped in, rang everybody and got a few tiny jobs. The agent got me a few tiny jobs. And that's how any career starts, isn't it? Yeah. If you're going to do it, just do it. <laughs> and yeah, don't do halfway. So at that point, you, as you mentioned, you get a few jobs. I think your first professional job was age 34. Um, but then it was interesting to talk about the Arts Council because what a lot of our listeners will know you from, though there are many roles that you had, is uh, your role in the thick of it as Terry um, Coverleys, who is a senior member of the civil service, perhaps not the best advert for the civil service. Um, but um, you said when I uh, wanted to A, know about going up for that part, at the time did you... I suppose what I wonder is when you go up for roles as an actor, if you have a sense of whether the, the thing you're going for is really going to take off or not. Did you have any inkling when you went for it? Yes, yes and no. Um, I The inkling I had was that I had an amazing audition. It was incredibly good fun. And I guess that's that was remained true throughout the thick of it. The process of doing it was hugely hugely enjoyable and that is all down to Armando Iannucci and what happened when I went for that audition was that 
I had been working in my local estate agent. So obviously I did have some writing commission, but I was having to kind of plug the gaps of with any local jobs. And one of the things I did was um, rentals on a Saturday, lettings on a Saturday. And my boss at this estate agency had said to me, listen, if you need a bit of extra money, there's somebody locally who is she's hosting focus groups and you you're an actor. You could do you know different characters and things. Why don't you just sign up with her and then she can bring you into different things and you could be, you know, there's nobody checking it. You can be a, you know, housewife with three kids. You can be a um, single career woman. You could be any of those things in the focus group because you just have to answer the questions and uh, you're going to get cash 50 quid. So I thought, marvellous. So I'd been doing that for a while. I went into the audition with Armando Iannucci and I said, the storyline was, I can't remember exactly, but it, it sort of hinged on something to do with focus groups. And I said, you know what, I've been doing these focus groups. And it was when the Labour Party at that point was, you know, running the country via fo focus groups. I think that's become de rigueur now, but it was it was something that was new then. And I told Armando this story about me going in and playing different characters effectively to get the 50 quid every week, which was known to the person who was setting up the focus groups. Is this theft? I'm not sure. Um, sorry if it is. And he just laughed and laughed about this. And so we ended up kind of improvising that. And in fact, that ended up in the first series. That storyline was was in there at one point. But I think that after that, he, I think, I may be wrong, but I think he then invented the character of Terry after after our meeting because he wanted somebody who would be you know, a woman who was in that system. And I think he just thought, oh, well, this might work. So, yes, it was it was a kind of premonition of something to come. But I didn't hear anything from them for six months. And then my agent rang me up on the something like the 4th of January saying, oh, sorry, I forgot to tell you, they rang before Christmas. But um, that job you went for in July, uh, they want you to start on Monday. So I, it was a real kind of shock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would just really stress me out if I thought something had gone really well and then I didn't hear for six months. But perhaps yeah. that's acting. <laughs> yeah. Get get used get used to it, Katie. Get used to it if you want to join our crowd. <laughs> Yeah, I'm okay. Um, no, um, I, you, we were talking about the Arts Council earlier. I was reading about getting in character for the role of Terry. And you said that it was born out of your experience working as a combined arts officer at the Arts Council. Um, and as you mentioned, it was, you know, just around the corner from Millbank. Um, so, so was it that you were kind of glimpsing parts of Westminster? How did it feed in and what were you seeing at the time? It was an element of that. What I saw was the kind of hysteria and excitement that there was around proximity to power. And I'd seen a bit of that at Cambridge, of course. There were, you know, there were people I knew whose parents were cabinet ministers and so forth. So I'd seen a little bit of it, but I hadn't really, you know, power. I, as, as we've been talking about, I grew up in rural, you know, North Wales. It was not, it was not a great power seat that Westminster is. So I hadn't seen the kind of behaviour of people around power before. And I watched people become so overexcited and so craven and so able to throw their own values under buses as soon as they were getting near 
either Westminster itself, as in, you know, there'd be meetings that had to happen in various department of culture or whatever, or whether it was just people who would be coming in as the arts council themselves or various other committees and boards. And there'd be a sort of frisson thrill that went on. And that was so surprising to me. And then gradually, as I was there two and a half years, I began to realise that it was beginning to affect me too. That I had, I'd come in believing in my art forms and wanting to do things for my art forms. That was the most important thing to me. But then suddenly I realised I was shifting my own position to being less about the art form and much more about the power and the access that power gives you. And I realised then that in our country, because we do essentially work from a system of patronage at root still, which emanates from the crown, because of that, the value of money is less than the value of power as a currency. And I saw it and engaged in it firsthand. And then at that point realised, oh, oh, I got scared. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm just as corruptible as anybody. Oh, my goodness. You know, I thought I was on the side of fairness, justice, right, you know, culture. But actually, I'm just as bad as everybody else and just want to be in that minister's office being, you know, with them flattering me. Um, <laughs> I, can, I can imagine that. I'm thinking about my days working in Westminster right now. Now, I know you don't have all day, so just a final few questions. I want to talk about the film After Love, which is out at the moment. And you play the lead character in this. And obviously, it's also come out during a pandemic, which I imagine... <laughs> complicates things but it was filmed before covid is that right yes yeah it was filmed the summer before covid when covid was a twinkle in some little forest's eye so, so how has it been uh, bringing that out during the i mean your role has been praised very heavily I, I think the guardian called it a masterclass in drama so has it been a strange experience almost receiving that while also being fairly cut off yeah, I think it's been quite a lonely experience. Well, I mean, firstly, it is lovely to be part of a film that has been so well received. I mean, that, that you know, how often does this happen? It just, not to me, it doesn't happen very often. I mean, that is a lovely thing. And we did get into lots of the big festivals, you know, last year. Cannes, Telluride, Toronto, lots of, uh, Tokyo, uh, all of which we would have gone to. <laughs> and had a lovely international movie star kind of experience. As it turned out, they were all virtual events and just sort of merged one Zoom into another. Did you get dressed up for them? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, it's sort of hard to get dressed up for a Zoom, isn't it? You just don't feel it's really... Just really want to wear your tracky bottoms. But it's been bad luck, good luck, I don't know. I think it's a film that's quiet and strong and has a certain sort of, it feels modern and fresh and new. And I think all those qualities probably have probably have stood in good stead in terms of it coming out as one of the first films that has come out back in cinemas after a year of COVID. Would it have got lost? I don't know whether the, you know, everything is about context, isn't it? We, we experience things through the context of our moment, of that moment in time. And whether something communicates or doesn't communicate at that moment is 
is hit or miss. You just you can't legislate for it. So I think possibly it is a film that speaks to a time. Aleem Khan's done this beautiful, wrote this beautiful script. It it's it, there's Brexit as a kind of very almost metaphoric and sort of sort of fragile element within the story. So it does have a kind of political a political context, whilst it itself is a domestic, I, I kind of call it a bit of a domestic psychological thriller. But it has so many elements in it that, that even that doesn't quite do it justice. Two final questions I want to ask you. Uh, the first was just, we often hear a lot about female actresses and how it gets more difficult as as you get older, fewer parts. But looking at your career, we're talking about all the really interesting roles you have lined up, have recently done. Would you say actually the opposite's been true for you? Yeah, and then that's probably to do with starting late, because I think we were talking earlier about that moment when, you know, if you start off as an ingenue, you, you can start off as an ingenue and then people you're lodged in people's minds as something which then needs to have transition, go through a transition later on to be lodged in their minds as something else. So because I missed that stage out, I think I was fresh, fresh to the commission, to the casting pool as an older person, I mean, 35, but, you know, it's still, it, relatively, it's not the same as having been, you know, Juliet, whatever. And I, so I think that helped a little bit. But I think the other thing that is probably more important and is demographic is that women joined the workforce at a point in, you know, in, in my lifetime to, to this extent of joining the workforce. So there have been many, many more stories because often things are workplace precincts, as they call it in the, in our business, that, that there's a workplace and that's what the stories are coming out of. And so that there are many more roles because you can include women in those places rather than just having them domestically, you know, back in the kitchen. And in fact, interestingly, doing the Larkins, which is set in 1958, and a huge amount of it is... Uh, is set in the world of, um, you know, the farm and the kitchen. So my character's role, who is the mum, she is there a lot and she's part of all those stories because that's where this, a lot of it is set. But it was no, it's notable to me that all the bits of the story which happen in the village don't include my character. Because in those days, the, the, that, the sphere of the kitchen was that kind of small plot, if you like, of feminine um, jurisdiction. And now that has opened up so enormously over my lifetime that I think um, I've benefited from that in terms of roles. Variation, finally. Brilliant, thank you. And then just to end the podcast, I'm going to ask you a question we ask everyone on this podcast, which is, I've been talking about how you get to where you are. Um, so along that journey, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? I've got two. One one I won't go into, but I just want to lodge it, uh, which is, you know, if you're looking for love, write a list of all the things that you want from that person that you think, you know, you want to to be your other half, as it were. Because... I've never seen that really work and that what happens is that love is a mysterious thing and that you often get what you need, not what you think you want. But I won't go into the detail of that. But the worst advice I've been given 
in other senses is you can't go wrong with bricks and mortar. Well, you can actually. <laughs> um, I bought a house when I went to work in, in Leicester at, uh, at Leicester Poly and very quickly it was, I think I bought it for th- something like £35,000, which doesn't sound a lot compared to today's house prices, but was an awful lot to me at the time. And within three years, it was worth £12,000 because negative equity hit. And in many ways, <laughs> um, I remember um, everybody was sort of saying, you yeah, know, no, buy now, you've got a salary, you know, you can, you know, with the 100% mortgages, buy it, buy it, just do it now, now, now. So I did. This is not my parents, I have to add, but it's just the general world around. And I remember the day I moved in, I, I thought, ah, oh, my home, my new house. I lay on the bed to go to sleep. And then I, and then I suddenly had this realisation. I sat bolt upright and I thought, hang on a minute, this house could be worth less than I owe on it. And duly, it was like a premonition because that came to pass. And that was only generation, I think, in ever, possibly, that that was true of. But it suddenly occurred to me that because I borrowed this £35,000, that it wasn't necessarily always going to be met by the asset. And I just wish I'd had that thought about six weeks before I did it. Because in the end, that was such a nightmare to get out of. And I'm still kind of, in in many ways, still kind of, um, my finances have been dictated to by that moment. Thank you, Joanna. And thank you for listening. And while we have you here, just to say that we are now going to be taking a brief summer break for this podcast and we'll be back in the autumn of new guests. In the meantime, please do check out our archive uh, for episodes you may have missed. There's a range there from figures such as Suzanne Moore and the journalist Lynn Barber to the now shadow chancellor Rachel Reeves, the F1s or former F1s Claire Williams, Joan Collins, and also if you want to know what's happening at the BBC politics do check out the katie searle edition um, who's in charge of westminster politics if you haven't caught up on that and we would also love to hear from you if you have any guest suggestions and um, please do get in touch and we will do our best 